My name is Emma Casey, and this is Seed Stage Stories, a podcast where leaders, innovators, and entrepreneurs share the experiences that shape them and offer advice to the next generation of changemakers. Today, I'm excited to introduce Sukinder Singh Cassidy, a leading technology executive, entrepreneur, and venture capitalist with more than 25 years of experience scaling companies like Google, Amazon, and StubHub. As the founder of The Board List, a company that connects exceptional female and diverse talent to board and executive opportunities, Sukinder has also been a catalyst for gender parity in the Valley. I've looked to Sukinder as a role model for some time, so I'm very excited to share her insights. I hope you enjoy this episode. You've worked at some of the most iconic companies in Silicon Valley and served in senior positions of leadership, but how did you get started and what was your early career like? I always say to people that, you know, some of my more, most formative experiences were not in Silicon Valley. So my first job was in my dad's office and he was an entrepreneur. So he, you know, he was training me to do his taxes and all of us, we would do, you know, literally like fill out his ledgers. When I was probably seven or eight, I started working at my dad's taxes. And, and then maybe by kind of 14 or 15, I was a receptionist in his office during my summer holidays. Um, besides doing his taxes. And I mean, that was actually pretty formative in the sense that my father was a doctor, but he was a small business owner and he really loved running a small business. So I sort of feel like I got like the bird's eye view of entrepreneurship, not the glamorous, glorious venture capital view, just literally the like nuts and bolts of running a business Um, and watched how my father loved it. So that was pretty formative for me. I mean, he always told me to work for myself and I remember in college wanting to be like an executive, like I was like, oh, I want to be an executive somewhere. But by the time I was 25 or 26, I was craving starting my own business. So for sure that came from him. Um, And then the other formative experience, uh, which most people don't know about me, is my first job outside of my dad's office was, wait for it, as a receptionist at a Filter Queen vacuum franchise. And people are like, what? <laughs> um, and Filter Queen is like, was like the Rolls Royce of vacuum cleaners, like no joke. And you sold them as like door-to-door salespeople. So in the small town that I grew up in, St. Catharines, I told my dad, I, like, I don't want to work for you anymore. Like, I want to get a real job. And so I went into like what was then the classified ads, right? Like, no, it wasn't job, online job listings. They were in the newspaper. And I applied to be a receptionist at a local business, which turned out to be this franchise. Um, And the most interesting and formative part of that experience is watching. I mean, I was a receptionist, but the real action was like in the room right beside the front office, which was pretty shabby. I mean, it was in this warehouse. And um, it was people who came to work every day and opened the yellow pages. Again, like that's where, you know, people's phone numbers are all listed. And they would cold call people to get appointments to demonstrate the filter queen, which, by the way, was a machine that depend on how often they, how big they marked it up as salespeople could be sold for anywhere between $600 and $1,800. And they made their living cold calling, doing door-to-door demonstrations and closing. So I saw like firsthand, like the hustle it requires to sell. I had a huge respect by the end of that summer for like what it must be like to like literally cold call and, you know, just get shot down multiple times a day in order to get the opportunity that works, right? So that was my early lesson in choosing possibility. And I ultimately actually did pursue a career in sales um, or business development is the more glorious name for it in the Valley. But um, yeah, it was pretty formative. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned sales because I think a lot of the young people who I talk to who maybe share your um, ambition of becoming an executive mm-hmm. don't necessarily think of sales as a means of accomplishing that. But at the same time, um, 
I worked at like a B2B SaaS company that was very heavily focused on direct sales and you see the hustle and like confidence and ability to close that comes from trying and failing time after time. So yeah, do you think that um, that kind of mentality sort of translated to you like building confidence and like succeeding in those future roles in like banking and business development? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. There are a couple of things that people don't appreciate. So everyone thinks the Valley is built by engineers, and it is, but it's also built by people who create demand. And I'll tell you, the one thing engineers respect is people who can generate demand for their product because they know how to build it, but they don't know how to get demand for it, right? So in the world of e-commerce, that would be a marketer, right? In the world of B2B SaaS, that's an enterprise salesperson, right? In the world of Google, where I grew up in ad sales and uh, business development, that's online operations and that's you know physical ad sales to some of the biggest advertisers. So um, first and foremost, knowing how to sell, knowing how to generate revenue is like a valuable skill in any business. It's equally valuable in the Valley. Um, and as I said, it's the counterpoint to knowing how to build a product is knowing how to generate demand for it. So first of all, I think it's a, a an amazing skill to have if you want to be an entrepreneur um, or if you want to join a big company, everybody will value knowing how to sell. The second thing is, again, if you want to be an entrepreneur and even if you were an engineer, learning how to sell is pretty critical if you want to sell your vision, if you want to raise money, if you want to sell employees on joining you, like Learning how to craft and sell a vision is one of these essential skills. So you can tell I feel pretty strongly about it as a skill set. And then you pointed the other real benefit. Like the other real benefit of sales, even if you tried and it's not your career, is you do develop agility and confidence because you understand that by its very nature to grow anything, you have to take multiple shots on goal. You know, people who aim for like one perfect move, like life is not nearly that clean. Life in progress, you know, startups have this like picture of like, you know, this like scramble egg mess until like you're up and to the right. But that, you know, it's just a path of iteration. And so, you know, sales is a great way to learn how to just iterate and you kind of get a little inured to failure. Like, you know, it doesn't scare you nearly so much when you have done sales. You understand that that's just part of the process. Yeah. No, it reminds me a little bit of what you talk about in your book, like the myth of single choice and sort of related to that, what was your first job out of college and how did you eventually make your way towards Silicon Valley? Well, you know, we talked about sales. Sales was my trusty first job out of college when I couldn't get the job I wanted. Um, So I went to school in undergrad in Canada and I went to Canada's leading undergraduate business school. It was all case study. Um, And I went away in my final year to college, my final year in Canada, we call it university. Um, to study abroad. And I came home and I had a great time studying abroad. But when I came home, I missed the job search process at the school, like, you know, firms coming and so on. And of course, I was quite competitive. I wanted the investment banking or consulting job that my friends got. Um, but I had missed the recruiting cycle. So I started job searching and I got a few interviews, but I didn't get the job. So I graduated feeling fairly depressed because I did not have the job of my dreams. Um, but I had been selling hotel space in our local small town where this, where um, London, Ontario, where my university was. So I returned to the job that I had the previous summer. They like have, were happy to have me back. And I stayed in that town all summer and sold literally conference space, space for like meetings and, you know, to companies at this like hotel and conference center. And then the following fall, I uh, applied to the jobs on the job board 
that the kids graduating were applying to. And so I thought, oh, okay, I'll compete with the class underneath me and then I'll get the job of my dreams. Um, and I failed to get that job again. I got many more interviews, but I still didn't get the investment banking job I hoped for. Um, and so, you know, my path was actually pretty difficult. I, you know, I kept at it. Um, lots of kind of stories in between. And I ended up taking a serendipitous trip to New York um, that my father encouraged me to take to apply to go have an informational interview at an investment bank that did not recruit in Canada. A friend of mine had helped like put my resume in and it was like Merrill Lynch, which is one of the largest investment banks in the world, but did not come to my school or to Canada to recruit. And my dad was the person who encouraged me to just like take a train ticket down and do their 15 minute informational interview that they offered me. And that informational interview turned into a two hour interview and that two hour interview turned into an invite to, um, to come in for final round interviews. And I skipped multiple rounds of interviewing and got my job on Wall Street. Um, but it took a year. Uh, in that time where I was pretty schizophrenic, I was applying to anything and everything. I applied to med school. I applied to law school. I applied to the foreign service. I took a train trip to New York. I applied to jobs for MBAs. Like I could go through all the things, I all the shots on goal to get the job of my dreams, but it was a lot. Um, so I think like also, as you can tell, pretty formative, pretty scarring at the time. But in hindsight, like, yeah, it taught me again, like, you know, you don't know which choice is going to turn into a big reward, no reward, a small failure, a big fail. All you know is like, you got to keep choosing. And I think college was an exercise in to try and get that job. Wow. It was like, I got schooled in how many times I needed to choose and choose and choose and choose and choose again, just to get a single degree. Yeah. And uh, from your book, I saw that before going to California, you did do some more like work in investment banking. Did, yeah. And is that something that you would recommend to uh, like students who like ultimately are interested in like entrepreneurship or just because I'm curious why you decided to go from investment banking eventually to tech? Um, I don't think that's like as typical at least now. So yeah, I was just curious. Um, yeah. what you think about that as like an early career experience? Well, first of all, I will say to people, any career experience is a good experience when you have none. So um, it's just like pick a skill and learn it, right? Because we come out of college and we don't know what we want to do and people expect us to know. So I picked investment banking for one rather shallow reason and one probably better reason. The shallow reason is I was competitive and all my classmates wanted it. So I wanted it too. Like whether or not that was an informed decision, I was just like, if they want it, I should want it. It was the same thing I felt about consulting. If they want it, I should want it. The more thoughtful reason I, you know, I actually took it was I was okay at finance in school, but I wasn't like, I wasn't like top of my class. And I realized that like financial literacy, you know, just learning how to read income statements and balance sheets and, you know, understanding capital markets and raising, I did understand that if I didn't know what I wanted to do, that was a good skill to have. And in fact, you know, obviously going to investment banking, you spend two years like crunching numbers and, you know, uh, and it is a great way to build uh, a skill set in finance and that's useful for everything. Um, so that I think pays off. And by the way, I think people go into consulting, investment banking, accounting, sales, like I'll say to people, it doesn't matter what skill you get as your first skill out of college, it's going to be useful. Like, it's just going to be because you have no, you know what, you have no work experience. Um, but do I recommend finance and understanding the numbers for somebody who wants to start a business? Sure. Like, you know, I think that having that grounding, like, in just like, like, what's a profit and loss? Like, what's an income statement? What's a balance sheet? Like, how do you read them? 
yeah, I think it's an, you know, it's a really good skill to have. So I'm glad I acquired yeah. it early. And another thing that I think a lot of college students are thinking about is choosing like not only like what type of job um, to pursue first, but also like which company. Yes. And you're someone that has done like pretty exceptionally well in like choosing these companies, um, particularly like before others kind of like realize um, their potential. Uh, You were pretty early at both Amazon and Google. And I'm just curious, like what advice would you have for um, like determining like which people to follow like which like companies to follow and like maybe what went into your decisions to join those teams sure well first of all um and by the way this applies to merrill lynch it applies to google i joined google and was in hindsight it seemed prescient but honestly it was already over a thousand people and it was doing very well and it was on its path to being public so i don't think it was particularly risky i mean now people look at google and they're like oh it's you know 180,000. i don't know what the number is but it's something over a hundred thousand um and i joined when it was sub a thousand but it was still a thousand which in the world of startups is actually quite a big company um and i joined amazon it had just gone public but i went there through a startup so to be fair and merrill lynch was very big so the first thing i would say is when you choose big you know i think it's fine to go to a large company if you think you can learn if it's in an industry that has growth and momentum and then as we said we'll come to who you choose to work with um, and I think when you choose to go the startup route, you're sort of trying, you're choosing to go into a more unstructured environment that by its very nature, you don't know if that thing will succeed or not. So the choice of who you work with is even more important because you can fall in love with the what of a startup. Like you can say, oh my God, this startup's in, you know, has this idea, but it may pivot five times by the time it's, you know, uh, it is the company that's ultimately successful. So while there's some level of falling in love with the who, I think in startups, I always say it's a high contact sport. It's almost entire oh, of the what. It's almost entirely about the who because like, you know, the company is going to go through multiple iterations and pivot. So on larger companies, I think, um, you know, it's about do you like the industry? What's the growth potential? You know, how much, you know, what are the new business opportunities for you to learn and grow? Who can you learn and grow from? Um, because often these larger companies have um, just, you know, people with tremendous skills and experience that you can learn from. Um, but I think when you go to a smaller company and you're looking for the who, you might be looking for somebody you can learn from. But I think the most important thing in smaller companies is, you know, is this somebody I would want to follow? Does this person have a history of, you know, attracting and retaining talent? Does the person, the founder I'm following have, you know, uh, a strong reputation? By the way, if I were to ask that person and look at the company and look at its culture and values, which you can see pretty easily in a small company, you can just ask people, you know, would I find that it's a place where I think that they overlap pretty, you know, pretty much with mine. So I always think that you succeed in kind of uh, situations where you find what I call super boss and who teaches you by coaching, by osmosis, because they're an attractor of opportunity, you know. Or even that they are able to attract other great talent and you're on a team where you're like, wow, look at all of these people I can learn from. Super bosses don't have to be the nicest people in the world, but they are, they're magnets for opportunity. And you can see that in their track record and even in the things they teach you just by being around them. Um, and then I always say go to a place where your values fit, where, you know, generally, you know, uh, you, you can find some sense of like, hey, how my manager or this team acts, and particularly, you know, in situations that aren't always great is a good indication of how, you know, of how they really are kind of from a values fit. And so um, you can get a lot about a, a team or a company's culture from Glassdoor, from Blind, what have you. 
But you can also just ask, like you can say to a a prospective manager, like, hey, like, you know, what are your values? What are the values of the team? And if people are like, well, I'm not sure what you mean, just say like, hey, how did you handle the most recent crisis? Like, what was what were you proud of and how the team came together? Like, you know, what were your struggles? Those are some of the ways to uncover the values of the team that you might be joining. Yeah, those are definitely some like really good points and questions to ask. And um, going back to Google, um, it seems like one of the inflection points in your career was making what I imagine was a pretty difficult decision to leave, um, like a great team and a great position there. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, you were leading like maps and search and also doing some like international um, like business development. Um, what made you take that leap um, to go like eventually like start your own company? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, when I left Google, I was running Asia Pacific and Latin America, which was uh, the fastest growing region for Google in the world. Um, and that was a business we built from 60 million to several billion. Uh, and I personally took from 60 people to 2000. So it was like an amazing team. I built that team. I love that team. I bled that team. So yes, it was actually um, a team I adored um, and a business that was on fire. Uh, I think I left because, you know, and I would say to people, like if you're leaving a great place, know why you're leaving, right? <laughs> like, what are you <laughs> running to? I was leaving for the one thing that Google could not give me, which is I wanted to be a CEO and I was not going to be the CEO of Google. Um, and then, and that was sort of like really big for me. I was like, gosh, if I'm ever going to take a, an entrepreneurial risk to go to a startup or anything, this might be the time. I understood that, you know, with my resume at Google, I could keep doing more of the job I was doing. I could switch to another job. I could have another big job. Like there was no shortage of opportunity at Google or another big company, but I was never going to be CEO. And I wanted to prove to myself that I could go be a CEO. That was one. And then number two, I had a lot of curiosity about e-commerce I thought e-commerce, you know, I had been at sort of generation one of e-commerce early on at Amazon. And then I'd come to Google, which was a media company and a tech company. And um, it was like circa 2009. And there were all these interesting things happening in e-commerce. Um, there was like a lot of lifestyle and fashion companies starting. There was, you know, companies like House, which were trying to give you inspiration. So people were trying to merge inspiration and commerce, which hadn't really happened yet. And so I was very curious about that field. And, and so I left for the things that Google couldn't give me. Um, you know, Google didn't enter e-commerce until like, I don't know, six years after that. <laughs> and uh, and certainly no business person was going to become the CEO of Google. That was going to for sure be a product person. And in fact, Sundar Pichar ultimately ended up you know, becoming the, the next CEO of the company under Eric. Those are the reasons I left. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. And with all of these roles, whether it's like, banking or BD or serving as an executive, um, like they are extremely demanding, especially for someone with kids. And I'm curious what drives you like at a more fundamental level and like if that's changed over time. Um, it probably hasn't changed in the sense that I think I, um, what drives me is the opportunity for impact. Like, I guess, I was always intense. So for like you said, like there's what drives you and like your personality. So my personality was always intense, meaning I was always like, you know, driven. I don't know why I, we are all born certain ways. And I woke up every day being like, what else can I do? But I think more fundamental, as you said, is like, I think I've just always had, and I think I had it from my parents. I mean, I watched two people who like, you know, they worked extraordinarily hard. My parents were both doctors. They like, my mom would work until like 10 PM at night. My dad would do night duty. They both like, but they loved what they did and they had an extraordinary sense of impact. 
And so I guess I was somebody who was raised with the belief that like your job, what you do in the world as a job and your impact in the world, they don't need to be different things. So I think interestingly, like, yeah, I want to have fun, but like, I think what drives me is I kind of always want to have impact. I want to know that like, whatever I'm doing, I'm making a contribution and that that contribution lives up to my potential. Um, yeah, I kind of like at the most fundamental level, I'm driven by the idea of having an impact. Um, and so I think whenever I feel like I'm falling short of my potential, I get quite antsy. And right now, I think it could be helpful to pivot a little bit more towards um, risk taking and some of the topics in your book. I think they're especially relevant to people my age. And so just to start, college students do like make a lot of decisions related to what classes to take, what internships to apply to, how to best spend their time and like which career paths to pursue. And as someone who does have a wealth of experience making difficult decisions and positions of leadership, I'm curious like what your process is when you're making a hard decision. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's sort of like anything. Um, in order to like make hard decisions, you got to get good at making easy decisions, like make easy decisions easily. So that's actually right. Like I'm like when people agonize about little choices, I'm like, oh, it's like make the little choice. Like what's the real risk here? The harm is very little and you're going to learn something. So my first piece of advice to people is like, before you like agonize about the big choices, what are the little choices you could make today that would teach you something new that would unlock an ambition that would give drive more impact? So you know, it's sort of like anything, like you want to become a big risk taker, we'll start by taking some little risks often. So I think my first piece of advice is just like, hey, like it's not binary. Like life can be incremental, like make the incremental choice for impact today. Like maybe if you have a friend you adore, tell them you adore them. Maybe you have a class where you don't understand what's going on. Walk up afterwards and ask the professor, like the question that you're afraid to ask. Like those are all just little choices every day. Like like to just see what happens. Um, so I think that there's a lot in kind of what I believe that's sort of that. The second thing I think that's interesting for college students, and you sort of hit on it, one of the things I find fascinating um, is when college students apply to school, they go through a very rigorous process of putting multiple like things in the water, right? And and trying to figure them out. And you know, like, I think that actually one of the biggest and most interesting acts of choosing possibilities is watching kids apply to school. It's agonizing. But they apply to safety schools. They apply to their most ambitious schools. They apply to schools in between. They might apply for different majors. Like, they go through this exercise of opening up parallel opportunities. And while it's agonizing, it's a great way to learn risk-taking, right? And then once it's done, you're like, God, I wish I never had to go through again. And then guess what happens? Then like the job search comes up and you're like, <laughs> ah, and I'm like, and I, I'm like, hey, remember, like you actually can do this. Like you do actually need to learn to, you know, like parallel process, explore multiple possibilities at once. Don't be so sure that you need to know the answer. I think that part of the problem is people are like, you know, kids graduate school, like, I need to know the answer. What do I want to do with my life? I'm like, you actually don't need to know the answer. Like, you can go through a process of possibility, including trying two or three different jobs in order to get to the answer. So I think it's like this idea of the perfect plan. You know, it's actually in perfect planning. Like, it's more like, hey, how do you think about like opening up multiple possibilities and being in an iterative process, even in starting your career where you're like, hey, it's okay. You don't need to choose for a lifetime 
choose for the next two years and then go maximize the impact of whatever choice you made. And I guarantee in two years time, you'll have more information to make the next smart choice. So I think, I think I see a lot of agonizing over one big choice and I'm like, Hey, open up a lot of paths of possibility. And I guarantee you, like you are going to find that you could pivot into your ultimate career from five different starting points and you'll still end up in the same place. There's not just one path. Yeah, no, I think that's something that I notice and even sort of I fall prey to is trying to plan things out perfectly. But one of the like lines I thought that like I took to heart from your book was just like take small risks early and often to sort of produce that compounding event and uncover like insights that will inform your yeah, future choices. Yep. Yeah. And because I think as you mentioned, college is a relatively low risk environment to sort of learn those things. Like the worst thing that can happen if you ask that question to a professor is like, I don't know. I, I mean, nothing really. Like nothing they, really. they love when you, you ask questions. Like, so. I see it all the time. By the way, you see it in companies. Like you see that it's like a room is silent and you know people are all thinking something. And I'm like, if you have a question, ask it. Like you're going to, at a minimum, you're going to raise the intelligence level of the room, right? And probably, you know, somebody in this room will be the better for your asking. So just ask it. <laughs> but I think yeah. we all worry about like, what if we look stupid? What if, you know, what if somebody doesn't take our question the right way? I'm like, okay, what if? Like, so what, what happens? Yeah. Pretty much nothing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And one other thing I wanted to make sure I asked you about is that, um, since like your first role in the Valley, I think it was at Open TV, you mentioned that um, there were some challenges that come with like working in a predominantly male environment. Um, I think I remember your first boss said that you were like scaring the secretaries at the beginning. And um, from there, you've like gone on to serve as a position of leadership in these like very high profile roles. And so how have you navigated this landscape and what advice do you have for young women entering male-dominated fields? Sure. Well, first of all, um, recognize, I mean, you know this, everybody, like, everybody in the world has bias. I have bias, you have bias, right? There are no perfect workplaces because we're all human and we all come with, you know, as a function of however our, you know, our upbringing was. So I, in most cases, I presumed good intention in the places where I've been. Right. Like meaning like if I hold somebody to the standard of perfect, that's not it's not a tangible standard for me. It's not a tangible standard for most people. Right. Like let's presume everybody has bias. And I go into most company situations feeling like most people are well intentioned. So what you really want is an environment where for the most part you feel safe, that you know, like your values overlap. What you think is sort of good and just and fair in the world is largely the approach of the company. And if something were to go wrong or be difficult that you, you know, that they would handle it in a way that's consistent with those values, right? So like they could take the feedback or, you know, rectify a situation, what have you. And I'd say for the majority of my career, I have sought out people, like i.e. the person I work with, right, in the group I work in. Like I'm, I'm looking for people where I find that values overlap. And I'd say largely, largely that's been right. Because you can say like, hey, I want a place where the company's values match mine, which is great. But mostly we go to work every day in a small team, right? So it's about who you work with. And who you work for. <laughs> I mean, like that's your proximate environment at work most days. And if you that if, if you love that team, you might even withstand, you know, more volatility at the company level if your team is great, right? So we know that we make choices based on who's proximate to us. Um, all this is a way of saying, um, A, look for people who kind of share your values because they're not going to be perfect. You, you know, you might find bias or what have you, but at least you feel like you could bring up a topic and, you know, and raise it. 
And I'd say the two situations in my career where I feel like I encountered bias, one of them was at Open TV, as you noted. And interestingly, that's a place where on my second day on the job, my boss said to me, like, hey, you're scaring secretaries. And I literally did not know what I had done. Like, I did not know. I was like, <laughs> what could I have possibly done? And, you know, what unfolded in the following weeks is he sort of kept lecturing me that I was sort of a rookie on his team and giving me kind of less responsibility than I was used to. So I didn't really feel like I was being valued or my skills. Um and I was observing him actually rewarding the volatile behavior of a male colleague in public repeatedly. And I was like, really not down with that. I'm like, wait, I'm being told I'm aggressive. Wait, here's this like older male, you know, who acts badly every day and you sort of like cajole and condone his behavior. So I was sensing a, like a gap, right? And then, and then I sort of, like I said, I didn't feel valued for like my aggressiveness where I would say like most other places I'd been, like that wasn't a comment to the negative. I was like, my desire to like get there and get going was always seen as a positive. So um, in that situation, I exited. And I exited because I did not believe that I was proximate to somebody who maybe had the same worldview and, or values or maybe, maybe even acceptance of my strengths. And I also felt like there was a power dynamic there. So like, I think when we are stuck and we feel like we're in an in unequal power dynamic with when there's lack of justness or fairness, it's really hard to speak up, right? This is why I say like, you sort of have to enter situations where you're trying to find people who have values overlap. And even if they're a dynamic where you report to them, they're pretty, you want to know there's enough values overlap that you would feel safe to say something. And often, you know, when we flee situations versus stay and try and have, make a change happen, it's because we feel unsafe. Right. So what's my observation? My observation is, you know, everywhere I've ever, ever been, I've kind of sought that values overlap. And um, in the few cases where I didn't have it, I've stayed where I believe that sort of I could make change happen. And at least once I left when I was like, you know, this person's in a power dynamic over me and I, I'm not going to be able to change the situation. And I don't feel valued. And it's and by the way, in that case, it was a startup like. It was like we talked about that high contact sport, like in a startup, there's no other division to transfer to. There's just the place you are. Whereas in larger companies, you can sometimes right move away from that group, find, you know, a more a place that's more conducive to, you know, your success or values alignment or even just you know, where your strengths are needed. Um, so that's mostly how I feel. And I don't know, have I navigated any differently? I, I don't know that I have. I think I've just sought to go to places where, um, yeah, who I am is valued and I find I feel safe. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, one thing that you have done differently is recognizing the imbalances and lack of representation and really taking action on that. Um, I'll always remember listening to the main Stanford produced entrepreneurship podcast. It's called ETL and having the guest, which was Katrina Lake, um, who's the founder and CEO of Stitch Fix, name you as the most important mentor in her career and recount how eye-opening it was to learn from your style of leadership. It's something that's always stuck with me. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about the importance of mentorship and how you scaled that process of unlocking opportunities for others um, through your company, The Board List. Yeah. So look, I think you're hitting a couple things. First of all, um, to be fair to Katrina, like I'm not sure I was, I mean, I think it's very flattering. She calls me a mentor. I think mostly I don't treat other women. 
I'll say this, I don't treat women differently than I treat men. I presume they have equal amounts of ambition and capability. So it's certainly not that I, I don't go through the world thinking, gosh, women need my mentorship more than men do. I really don't. I mostly <laughs> like, I mostly might want to be a leader who hopefully offers insight and support of, you know, awesome people. And as a leader, the benefit of being a leader is you get to meet awesome people all the time and work with awesome people. And Katrina was one of those people I worked with. She was she was actually my intern at Polyvore. And so when she went to business school, she had an idea for a company, which turned out to be Stitch Fix. And she called me to share the idea with me. And I was like, oh my God, yeah, you should do that. And I became her first angel. So, uh, and joined her board for a couple of years. So um, Katrina was already way, 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 way talented. And I was lucky enough to intersect with her. Um, but I do think you're hitting maybe one thing that Katrina said, and I appreciate this. And I heard it from you know the team at Google and other places I've been. I think it is important to have role models or to see what's possible, right? So I would say to people like, you know, one of the benefits of the current generation of unicorns, there are lots of female CEOs, Katrina included, um, same with the founder of Bumble, same with the founder of Guild, I could go on. There are women building unicorns. And is that important for aspiring female entrepreneurs to see? So, you know, they know it's possible to look like that and be like that. Absolutely. Is it great for venture capitalists who missed out on Stitch Fix to see that and be like, oh, like... Yeah, I happen to think that fashion business was a little business, but oh, maybe serving like female consumers in fashion turns out to be a gigantic business. Oh, yeah, I missed that one. Is that important? Sure. I'd love to see more FOMO from VCs who, uh, you know, miss out on, you know, opportunities they put in some stereotype. So, so I think the opportunity to be a role model is a big one. That doesn't mean, but I'm not in a patronizing way, more in that, like, I appreciate that when people see it, it does help them think they can be it. So, you know, I've certainly gotten some feedback in my career that being an entrepreneur or being a CEO or whatever, just like, you know, or even just being a mother and a CEO maybe helped other people think it's possible. Um, I think that there is something for sure to that. And of course, it's important to actively mentor, of course, but I just, I'm resistant to the notion that like women need it more than men. And that like, there's some, like, I just never want to be patronizing to women because they're equally capable and talented. So it's more about what can I do to support your ambition? <laughs> and the board list yeah. is a platform that tries to just level the playing skills, uh, playing field. For those who don't know it, the board list is a platform where women in underrepresented groups are nominated for board service to try and solve this myth that there isn't enough talent you know, the pipeline myth of like, where are all the great women for my board, which used to be a myth five or six years ago. I'm like, okay, they're all there. Let's just surface them through, you know, by crowdsourcing. Yeah. And so the board list is a, to your point, it's a systematic way to try and identify and raise talent, not from a place of charity, from a place of like, this is a tremendous opportunity. So you want to tap into this network? I'll make it easier for you. Here you go. Here it is. Um, you know, but shame on you if you, you know, walk through the world talking about how hard it is to equalize the playing field. Yeah, I mean, I just want to emphasize that um, for the audiences, the board list has grown pretty tremendously. And it was a very significant undertaking for someone who's a mom and an executive. Now I think you're doing some things in venture capital. So I don't know, for someone that's like a young woman with like aspirations of like being an entrepreneur, I just like, I mean, I'm like thankful for you that you're doing so much to sort of like open these doors. So well, thank you. I think, like I said, I think the important thing is for people to realize that like there are opportunities to just equalize the playing field. And so if you can take it even in a little way, take it, you know, if you can take it in a big way, take it. Yeah. But it's all from the point of equalizing opportunity. This is not it. Like I said, this is just about helping people recognize talent. Yeah. 
And for the last question, which is something I ask all of my guests, what was one thing you wish you knew um, when you were 20? And if there was like one or two key pieces of advice that you would want our listeners to leave with, what would those be? Yeah, I guess <laughs> I'd want the one or two things that I'm sure I wouldn't have listened to. I feel like saying to my, you know, my younger self, just chill. It all works out like it's meant to. Because I certainly put as much pressure on myself as I'm sure many people on this podcast do. Like, what's the perfect choice? What's the thing I like so much agonizing? And, you know, sometimes I feel like saying like, you know what, you end up where you're meant to be. And I know it sounds so like philosophical, but like, just through sheer iteration, you know, you end up succeeding in places where you fit. And so maybe instead of trying to find the place, you know, um, that you fit, you should think about finding the place that fits you. Because I think I spent a lot of time wondering about wondering and worrying about how I didn't fit into somebody else's definition of success. And I think uh, I ultimately ended up getting a job in cultures that, you know, where I fit and I thrived in those cultures. Um, and, you know, uh, I think that's a, just an important way to flip the bit, which is think about where you fit, not just like, um, you know, not just where, you know, you feel like you should fit. It's a, it's a big one. And understand you got like, honestly, when I say multiple shots on goal, I mean, multiple shots on goal, like all the research suggests that the path to the CEO job is a winding one. And it's, and it's filled with people who make what seem like lateral moves, but they're people who take risks to learn and contribute. Um, so if you think there's one path, you're wrong. There are like infinite permutations to the end goal. So stop stressing, pick one and just knock it out of the park. Hey, this is Emma. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to this episode of Seed Stage Stories. If you enjoyed it, please share with friends and check out our blog on Medium. Until next time.